Mac Geek Gab, episode 616, or put backwards, 616, for Sunday, July 31st, 2016. Greetings, folks, and welcome to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab, the show where you send in your questions, tips, and cool stuff found. We share as much of that as is possible in the hour and change we have together each week. The goal, of course, being to learn at least three new things. Nope, today, I'm feeling it, four new things each and every time we get together. Sponsors for this episode include Eero at Eero.com slash MGG, where coupon code MGG will get you free overnight shipping on enterprise-grade Wi-Fi for your home. I can't wait to tell you more about that shortly. Here in Durham, New Hampshire, I'm Dave Hamilton. And here in Fairfield, Connecticut, John F. Braun. Good morning, good afternoon, good day, my friend, John F. Braun. How are you? Good. You know, as of late, you know, not only do I have to chase the kids off of my lawn, now I got to chase the Pokemons off my lawn. I mean, it's just getting out of control. Well, as of this morning, if you uh, if you updated the app yesterday, you may be you. It may have worked fine for you last night. So we're recording this Sunday morning, uh, Eastern Time, July thirty first, and uh, and evidently many people, my wife included, had their Pokemon accounts. It seemed to have reset themselves overnight. I don't know if that's just a glitch with with uh, Niantic servers, and it will all come back, but she went from level, I think 12 all the way down to, Hey, you should build an avatar this morning. So she was, yeah, she was not happy about that. And she's like, you have to fix that. I'm like, I have other problems I need to fix for other people that got in line ahead of you, dear. I have a podcast to record. So I told her to fix it and then write up an article for us at TMO. But, uh, my guess is that this is something on Niantic's end and they either can and will fix it. Or can't and won't. I haven't launched the app on mine yet today. So, yeah, I'm still at level six. You're I haven't st- thrown down any coin, nor do I plan to. But uh, yeah, it's 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 amusing. I'm I'm gonna get bored with it pretty quick. I think. Yeah, where it's fun is uh, when you're or, well. Being in a city with Pokemon Go made a huge difference. We didn't quite realize how much of a difference it made because we started playing it when we were uh, traveling in Europe. So it, you know there were. I mean, there were Pokemon and Pokestops and everything everywhere. And it was like, you know, we were hearing people saying they were running out of Pokeballs and this, that, and the other thing. It was like, how is that possible? There's like Pokestops everywhere. Well, not so much now that we're home. There's nothing in our neighborhood. So, uh, yeah, it's, uh, I can see why people might feel they want to lay down some, uh, some money to, you know, buy Pokeballs. I will give you a tip, though, sort of a universal tip. We've shared it on the show before. Um, if you want to buy anything uh, in-app purchases or whatever, you can save yourself 15, sometimes even 20% by buying iTunes gift cards at discounts uh, online. And you can often get them. Uh, e- it's it's through eBay, but it's not really an auction. It's eBay's PayPal gifts program. And uh, oftentimes you can spend 80 bucks and get a $100 gift card. And so not only do you get your Pokey, uh, you know, Pokemon in-app purchases at a discount, but perhaps more importantly, you can get things like 
your Apple Music subscription at a discount because you're buying those dollars cheaper and your Netflix and your Hulu and your anything else that you're paying for through the iTunes store, including, of course, apps and, and music and, and, you know, your, your occasional movies and that sort of thing. So yeah, it's, there's uh, my, there's my, <clears throat> my wrangling us back to the, the focus of the show tip. Not that, not that there's anything wrong with Pokemon Go, actually. That's a fine thing to talk about. Yeah. And we got one final tip here from our chat room, which you can always, well, at least when the show is happening. Well, you can always go there if you yes. want, but yeah. it's not going to be anybody I've had, there. I've had conversations with people in the chat room uh, kind of midweek at times. So, yeah. But of course, you can find that at macgeekgab.com slash stream. But uh, one of our... Uh, one of the people in chat room noticed that they put in warnings and I actually saw one of those warnings, Dave, is when I was playing this morning and they say, do not drive while playing this game. I did. I saw which, that. Um, I don't know if you've seen it, but I actually saw a video of somebody that sideswiped a cop car and the reason they did is because they were playing the game while driving their car. Well, that was what I was going to say is, <sighs> is, is when you live in the suburbs, um, playing Pokemon Go in from a moving vehicle. Now, I would highly prefer you to all do this as a passenger, not as a driver, but uh, but that's how Lisa's actually gotten her level way up. Is She doesn't drive anymore. She makes Skylar drive or she makes me drive, and, and, then, uh, and then she can catch Pokemon <laughs> while we're driving along. So, All right, we have a bunch of, uh, bunch of tips here today. So let's see, let's see how many of these we can get through. We'll start with Aaron, and uh, Aaron says... You are probably aware that you can do some pretty powerful searches in mail on OS X, but I discovered that you can do a lot of them on iOS as well. From your search field in iOS mail, type in a search token like yesterday, and he does mean the word yesterday. You'll see search results appear in the suggestions, but at the bottom of the list will be a, se a section labeled dates with the token yesterday as your choice. Tap on that and you'll see yesterday becomes tokenized. And then your emails from yesterday will be listed. You can specify whether to search all mailboxes or just the current one from the search option. As you probably know, you can also chain multiple tokens together, such as today, comma, yesterday, last day, week, month, or year. Attachments is a keyword. Unread is a keyword. Flagged uh, is a keyword. Months are keywords. So you could say July 2016, or you could just put in 2016. So these all can become tokenized in terms of your search results. And then you can add other things to them. So I could say, you know, July 2016, and then go tap that at the bottom to make it, you know, a, a encapsulated token. And you kind of see it change in the, to a bubble in the, in the search request. And then, uh, and then I could type, you know, Braun. And now I'm only seeing messages from John Braun and, and, or people, anything with Braun, I suppose, uh, but I could narrow it down to you. So thank you, Aaron. That's a, that's a killer tip. I love it. Good, good stuff. Anything to add to that, John, before we uh, blaze through the rest of these? Smart. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, we've got a couple of smart tips. So Beans has, uh, has one to share. Beans says, related to last week's episode 615, uh, I don't think it was mentioned, but you can also... So re relating to the favorites bars in Safari, and then last week I mentioned, of course, that there is also a favorites bar in Mail that works the same way. And he says, I don't think it was mentioned, but you can use command one, command two, command three, et cetera, starting from the left to select open tabs in the Safari window or mailboxes in the favorites bar in mail. 
I use it all the time in mail to zip through my most important work mailboxes. And no, I had no idea that you could do that. So let's see if I'm on, uh, oh, I got to get out of a search in mail here. So if I go to command six, that brings me to my Mac GeekCab feedback mailbox. Dude, and command one brings me back to the inbox. That's pretty good. I'm going to use that. Thanks, Beans. Good stuff, man. All right. And then Robin with a crazy tip, John. Um, So Robin says, I was just listening to episode 615 and wanted to chime in on Touch ID with a little tip. I have used the same tip on everything from an iPhone 5S, a 6S, a 6S, as well as an iPad Air 2, an iPad Pro 9.7. And this, what I'm about to tell you, works on all of them with all of the OS versions I have tried. And I'm going to say this before we start. The Touch ID sensor does not change with the OS version. So my guess is that this would even continue to work in future OSs perhaps just not future hardware if they ever change the sensor, but it does work on both sensors. And what's the tip? Start a training session as usual, but do not restrict yourself to one finger. For instance, on my first session, I will place my central thumb, then first finger, then middle finger, then thumb, uh, then thumb tip, uh, then the first finger tip, then the middle finger tip, rotating through all three fingers until the device prompts me to change the way you are holding your finger. Then I will rotate all through, through all three fingers again. I also slightly change the orientation as well, so maybe tilt the phone 90 degrees to get a different orientation on the fingerprints. Once I have done this on my right hand, I rename it right hand, and then do the same for my left hand. I have almost 100% success with Touch ID from all recorded fingers, and only had to do true training sessions for six fingers. And then, of course, that leaves uh, three slots, if you will, open because you can have a maximum of five, quote unquote, fingers trained on your phone. That's pretty cool. I got to try this. I got to see if this works because uh, I, I mean, I believe Robin. I want to see if it works for all of us. But that's pretty good. Thinking about training multiple fingers. I like it. It's good stuff. John. I don't like it. Of course you don't. It shouldn't work. It's the beauty of a hack. Yeah, I'm just afraid it may break down at some point. But see, that's the thing. Re- but well, we have had people report that their training went bad at some point, that they could no longer get in, and that, that's kind of weird. Well, yeah, but then you have a passcode. Would, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but, you know, that's the thing is the Touch ID sensor isn't storing, it's only storing a... Uh, calculation, probably like a CRC or something in the in the OS, or but it's not even storing it in the OS, right? It's storing it in that secure enclave in the phone. So as long as that remains, uh, then I can't see this changing. So yeah, I got to check this out. This is good. Next time I need to train up a uh, a device, I'm doing it this way. See if I can make Robin's tip works work. All right, uh, moving on to David. I've got a couple of things about photos here, and David will start us off. He says. Uh, Do an episode on image capture, he says, because it's the Swiss army knife of image management tools available on the Mac. And of course, it's free. He says, I particularly like the ability to view and delete both images and movies on your iPhone without importing them to your computer first. Plus, if you have a scanner, it's got a great scanner interface. And David's totally right. Um, I use image capture. If I need to delete images off of my phone, most of the time when I import them, into uh, into my iPhoto library, uh, you know, I just leave them on the phone. But sometimes, especially with my kids, it seems the phone just gets 
you know, crammed up full of images. And so you go to the older stuff and you can bulk delete images from image capture, which is awesome because I don't know of any other way to do that on the iPhone. I think that's the only way um, after you've imported them. You can, of course, bulk delete on import, but then it's a very selective delete. So, yeah, good stuff. Yeah. Thanks, David. A caveat for that. Yes, sir. Um, image capture. Well, well um, you, you can certainly use image capture to delete, but um, just, just a heads up here is that if you're running iCloud Photo Library, because someone wrote in with this and, and I actually replied to them and they're like, uh, you lied, image capture, I don't see the uh, delete icon. And I'm like, huh, that's interesting. And you know, I ran it on my computer and I saw it. But there may be a reason that you will not see the delete. If you have iCloud Photo Library, delete is not offered in makes image sense. capture. Yeah, which kind of makes sense because in that case, um, I think the reason is that uh, iCloud Photo Library is managing the well, photos. Yeah, it's not actually storing the photos on your phone necessarily. It's just storing the index of your photos with thumbnails and then may or may not have cached full-size copies of any given photo. But it's up to it's up to iCloud Photo Library to manage that. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and the scanner thing, I've used that in the past too. As long as your scanner is standards compliant, uh, and there are a few standards. I think the, the biggest standard is uh, Twain. Is that still used? Yeah, all right. Uh, that's what I found. I, I was using, um, back in the day, uh, a pretty high-end Epson flatbed scanner. Sure. And uh, image capture would see it. Um, and it would, it would see almost all the same features that their proprietary software would as well. But mm. uh, it was good. It it won't work with, uh, you know, like some of the, uh, oh, who is it? You know, like ScanSnap, I think some of those, which uh, some of those are not, uh, you have to use their software. Image Capture will not see them because they're not compliant with a, you know, a scanning standard. Yeah. Um, but for those that are, yeah, it's, uh, huh. I like it. Cool. Cool. Sweet. All right. And then moving on to, well, we have a, a comment uh, in regards to last week's episode from someone who we will refer to as Mr. Y uh, in reference to a previous Apple care employee that we will call Mr. X. So this is not Mr. X, but uh, well, you'll hear uh, I'm a longtime listener and also happen to work uh, at an Apple store. Well, everyone knows there are the people at the Apple store who help fix your computer that are called geniuses. There are also other roles at the Apple store. My job is mostly about teaching and training, sometimes groups, sometimes individuals, sometimes workshops. I teach all types of customers as well as our many employees all about using Apple software products and services. But my job role is known as a creative rather than a genius. So thank you, Mr. Y. Uh, I'm writing in response to episode 615 when you shared a large number of handy tips from listeners. One of those from, was from Louie in response to a previous episode where a listener wanted to catalog his photos in the manner of Picasso while keeping the originals stored in their own folders. The very excellent suggestion offered by Louie was to use Adobe Lightroom. And while I wholeheartedly agree with that, I would also like to make another. My suggestion may come as a surprise to you because all Mac users already have this excellent program on hand without having to purchase anything. The mystery program to which I am referring is Photos. There seems to be a huge misconception amongst most people that Photos insists on storing a copy of your photos within its own Photos library. I've heard incorrect information about this on many, many occasions from uh, other Mac podcasts and, dare I say it, even yours. And I, that's true. Uh, 
Mr. Y continues, take a trip to the preferences pane of the photos app and you will find a checkbox about importing that offers to copy items to the photos library. If this box is unchecked, then any photos imported will remain in their original location and only a smaller preview uh, will be copied to photos to be used as an index. You can even see within the file menu that there are commands to show referenced file in Finder or consolidate, which would then copy the original photo uh, into the photos library for easier transport or backup or whatever it is you want to do. So this is very, very similar to uh, the way iTunes works, right? Because you can, by default, choose to copy everything to your iTunes library, which on the Mac is truly just a folder. Um, in photos, it's a folder, but it gets called a package and that's fine. But, uh, yeah, I had no idea that photos could work this way. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Y for, uh, for enlightening us here. This is good stuff. I had no idea. Did you know this, John? If you did, you never said anything. So shame on you and also shame on me for never having noticed it. But Don't shame I mean. me. <laughs> How rude. I was pre-shaming you. <laughs> um, I haven't, I, I use photos so in free, uh, Got it. I only use it in a very basic fashion. Mm. Um, I think we all do. No, it's yeah. it's good to know that it. Uh, yeah, it has. I guess the 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 message here is that it has more power than a lot of people give it credit for. That's totally it. Yep. Yep. Sweet. Thank you very much, Mister Y. Okay. Uh, moving on. Ronald writes. Last week, I drove from Miami to Orlando. Uh, the travel tips episode was very useful for me. Uh, and so he was driving from Miami to Orlando to go to Disney World and Universal. The actual comment in episode 614, it was mentioned that most, if not all Apple chargers are rated 100 to 240 volts. Dave also mentioned that if your travel adapter does not, or if your adapter does not support that voltage range, a voltage converter would be needed in addition to a travel adapter. Uh, he says, if you are using a voltage converter, make sure you take note of the wattage of the device you are planning to plug into it. While laptops nowadays are usually under 85 watts, other travel items like flat irons can use over 100 watts very easily. Cheap voltage converters tend to support around 50 watts and can easily burn out with higher loads. And so he sent us a link to one on Amazon that we'll put in the uh, in the show notes here. And... Uh, and we'll, we'll, we'll go from there. But yeah, you, you, yeah, with laptops, you're right. They pull 85 watts, but most of them, as you mentioned, will, um, will have a, the, the, the converter in them. So all you need is an adapter to plug them into the right plug. But yeah, you do have to look at what you're trying to adapt. And uh, my, when we went to Europe, my, my daughter was looking at bringing a, you know, a, a flat iron or whatever you call that, the hair curling thing uh, with her. And she has two of them, and one of them was only built for, uh, you know, whatever, 120 volts or 110 here. And the other one had a range of voltage on it. So I was like, all right, kiddo, that's the one you bring. So we didn't bring anything that needed uh, conversion, external conversion. We only brought stuff that needed internal conversion. And we had my laptop and our our iOS devices. I didn't bring, like, a razor with me. I mean, I, I, brought, my, I brought my Harry's razor, um, which worked out great. So... Yeah, yeah, we were we were we thought ahead about that and it paid off big time. So thanks for the tip, Ronald. That's that's helpful stuff. Any thoughts on this, John? Yeah, I remember running into this. I think I actually gave you something that I had received. It was a uh, twelve volt to one twenty volt converter for a car. Mm. 
And I remember I was like, oh, um, you know what? I want to plug my uh, home vacuum cleaner into it. Nope. Oh, no, no. Because no, no. Uh, it's, it's not the most powerful, but but it, it draws enough watts where, yeah, again, the converter was like, nope. Yeah, no. Can't do it. Yep. It just made like a clicking noise or it, j- it just didn't work. It didn't provide enough juice. And I think I gave it to you because you, you, you had a need for it. Yeah, that, that thing actually was handy for a while. Um, we ran into that problem again in the car. One of our... I'm trying to think what it was. Oh, you know, we were going camping and we had uh, a, a AC powered air pump and we used that thing on it, but it didn't work. It, it, um, it, it required more juice, which sucked because, you know, then we couldn't blow up our, our air mattress with it. But uh, thankfully the people in the campsite next door were like, Hey, do you need a uh, battery powered pump? And we're like, yeah, we do. So it all worked out. It was good. Uh, and then, uh, John, you have a couple of tips here. You want to take us to, uh, Christopher and Mark and see where that goes? Sure. All right. Um, all right. So Christopher had a couple of comments. One, uh, was a general comment that was babbling incoherently about making a full backup (laughs) when we're talking about archive storage. Um, yeah, I, 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 I'll, I'll buy that. If you you got to tell people go what you're talking it. about, John. You, you've now we had a, we had a point. All right, you could yes. have what this, I am ta- but that's what okay. I am talking about is we we were uh, we had a question in a prior episode about uh, archiving old systems, and the question was, what's the best way to do it? Should I make a disk image or should I maybe do a full backup? And uh, I think the consensus was a disk image is a is a fine way of doing it. Uh, there are some concerns, which we'll address here. But then I said, but, you know, if you can make a full backup, uh, why not? Yeah, but why I still so? stick to that. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, my only argument of making a full backup is that if you're in a case where you can't reconstitute your uh, your image for whatever reason, it's nice to have a bootable system. But uh, that's my only point. Okay. Uh, and he said, I'm crazy. And it's like, okay, sure. Yeah, we're, you brought um, us right back to the weeds <laughs> that Christopher said we were in. So mo- moving yes. to his second comment. Um, but he said, that being said, if you're thinking that someday you might want to restore a system from a disk image, you should read the man page for ASR, which I didn't know about. ASR is an awesome way to use a disk image to bring a machine's disk back from bare metal to be an exact replica of its former self. You'll want to run an extra step when creating your disk image to scan image for restore. This puts a bunch of extra checksum info into the disk image and prepares it for restoring using the command line ASR utility. And yes, yeah, so uh, if you go to the terminal and you type man ASR, uh, it'll give you a whole bunch of options. And I saw a couple of others as well that um, uh, involve adding checksums. and Because uh, I think the concern with the disk image is that it may uh i think you you hinted at something called data rot dave or, or uh, disk images can get corrupt we've seen this with time machine right um, <laughs> more often than, but um no i wouldn't it, i would only worry about data rot uh if you are not checking the underlying media right so if you're on i mean if you're on a nas drive you want to make sure you run data scrubbing because that confirms that you know, it makes sure you read everything and you don't have data rot. And then if you're, if you're on a, a, a single disc, well then, I mean, you're just asking for trouble, but, um, but you, you know, you can, you can scan that disc too. So disc images all by themselves that are untouched 
aren't going to suffer from data rot because they're disk images. They might suffer from data rot if their underlying media uh, rots. But that's that's the only concern there. You know, the, what we see with Time Machine is totally unrelated. That's from adding and, and continually adding and to and modifying a disk image. And that's not data rot. That's just file system corruption. Two different things. Right. Uh, and looking through the man page, yeah, I do see an uh, uh, argument here, or, uh, uh, part of that command called image scan. And it says calculate checksums of the data and then provide an image and store them in the image. Okay, mm. that sounds like a good thing. Mm-hmm. So um, I like it. That's good. All right, so we have that. And then we have another question or a tip. Well, kind of a tip, yeah. Um, And it was from Mark, right? Are we at Mark? Uh Yes, we're at Mark, okay. So Mark had a question. Well, he he has an SSD, uh, and he gave us a little printout here, I guess, from uh, System Info. Uh, He has a Samsung SSD 850 EVO, 500 gigabyte. Uh, Those are nice, I've used Samsung. Hi, Mac Geeks. I know this has been asked before, but I have just fitted the above SSD and I'm somewhat confused about trim. Do I or don't I enable it? And if I do, how should I? Also, what are the pros and cons regarding security? If I do, I have done some Google Foo and got very confused. And he says you, he hopes you enjoy your holiday. It sounds like you did. And he hopes he doesn't get caught. All right, Mark. So the thing is, last I checked, uh, Apple still does not enable trim, and I verified this on one of my systems, but Apple does not enable trim for non-Apple SSDs. That's right. The good news is that you can enable it, and they include a command. And so what you want to do is go to our friend the terminal again and type sudo space trim force space enable. And then it'll give you a big, huge warning saying, oh my gosh, you're going to risk uh, all sorts of uh, disaster if you do this. No, but it's pretty, pretty long and kind of scary warning. And it's like, ah, just enable it. Um, and the answer is, uh, I, there's no downside to enabling trim, uh, in my humble opinion, Dave. I, I don't know if, I, what you think. No. And I'm glad <laughs> to hear your opinion on this has changed. No, it, it because yeah, it, it, the it, trim is, uh, I mean, I think, I'll probably get yelled at for saying this, but I'll, I'll say it's 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 a it's an API in that it is an agreed upon set of communication parameters where the operating system can tell the drive, hey, uh, we're not doing anything right now, and the drive can do some garbage collection. Uh, that's really all that it is. So if the drive says it, if the drive says it doesn't support trim, then turning it on just won't work because it 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 won't enable. If the drive does support, says it supports trim, but supports it incorrectly or doesn't actually, well, I don't think anything bad's going to happen. And hey, these vendors sell these drives to not just Apple users. They sell them to everyone. And Windows, by default, will enable trim on any drive that says it supports it. So, you know, I think Apple's being a little overcautious on this one. Yeah. And as far as, so trim, I think what trim is really doing is basically cleaning, uh, uh, from what I know, if you don't enable trim and you can, then you will see your write performance degrade over time. Sure. Because what trim is doing is it's, uh, I'll, I'll say it's scrubbing or cleaning uh, the memory cells so that when the drive comes back to them, the thing is if it's not, if a cell is not clean, then the drive has to do like double work in order to write the data because it has to erase it and then it has to write the data. Right. Uh, whereas trim does this uh, cleansing 
in the background ahead of time. Yeah, it knows when it can do it, and so it goes and does it. Yeah. So, um, yeah. all right. Regarding security, um, I don't think Trim really has anything has anything to do with security. But but to address the, um, I mean, it, Trim does erase cells, but but the thing is with SSDs. So in, uh, the thing is SSDs you do not have a one-to-one mapping between what I'll say the logical and the physical memory cells and that they can change over time. Okay. Does that make sense? Well, um, if you know, if you yeah, know the definition right. of logical and physical, but, but the, suffice to say that you may, there are memory cells in the drive and the, uh, the way they correspond to the cells that your computer sees will change over time. So it's possible Sure. That data that you've written, if it's not encrypted, uh, someone may be able, if they know what they're doing mm-hmm. or get lucky, may be able to retrieve data uh, that you've written long ago. The, 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 so the, all I can say about security and SSDs, uh, the best, uh, some drives explicitly support what's called a secure erase. And if they have a utility, um, like I think OZC, for example, the, the, the one that I have now in my mini, they actually have a utility that says we're going to do a secure erase. So uh, really? if your drive does not support, ah. yeah, last I checked, their, yeah, from what I recall, their utility actually has a secure erase option. Um, so unless the drive explicitly supports a secure erase, which guarantees, uh, but it's, it's kind of a non-standard thing. The, the other thing I could say is that if you want to make sure that the content on your drive is secure, enable File Vault as soon as you can. Because in that case, what happens is that the data, even oh, if the person can retrieve it, it's encrypted. It's so encrypted, unless they right. know your key or your password, they're never going to be able to get the data back. So I think that's the, the best advice is if you're concerned about security or people retrieving your data, use File Vault no matter what type of drive you have. Right. Right. Yeah. And with, with Max, anything that's been released in the last, I'll say five years, I, you'll probably, and maybe, maybe even older, but certainly anything released in the last five years, you're not going to see any speed degradation due to running, you know, whole disk encryption with file vault. And in fact, as Ed Marsak uh, tested a couple of years ago, it might even be a little bit faster because it makes the OS a little more efficient about the way it manages data. But it, this is he, he he repeatedly tested it and contis- consistently found that with file vault enabled, the machine was faster, but only by, you know, a, a half a percentage point. So it was very marginal, but it certainly wasn't slower. So anyway. well, I think that's because the cryptography is built into the latest processors. I think that's it, in a lot rationale. of them. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Sweet. All right. Um, I, we had a uh, we had a follow up, John. Uh, actually from the author of Smart Utility. We mentioned it uh, back uh, actually a couple of uh, maybe 10 episodes ago, but we've talked about Smart Utility many times. And uh, and he listened to the episode and he said, as a follow-up, Smart Utility also, we were talking about uh, Drive DX and Smart Utility and external drives. And he wanted to clarify, <clears throat> pardon me, that uh, Smart Utility also offers external drive reading. And he says it's the same as Drive DX, which is, 
they are both based on an open source driver called Sat Smart Driver, and we'll put a link to that in the uh, in the show notes just so that everyone has it. It's it's actually available at GitHub. He says, obviously, I'm biased, which makes total sense. He says, but I believe Smart Utilities algorithm uh, for prefail is better than Drive DX's. He says, but the interface needs some updating, and we're working on that for a version 4.0. So thank you very much for sharing that, Matt. That's uh, we look forward to 4.0 good stuff i like seeing you know competition in in things even even things that might seem esoteric like like uh you know drive monitoring because it's really a necessary thing and i like the fact that there's enough people paying attention to it <laughs> that know that this is happening it's good oh no but, but what i like also is that um yeah having multiple vendors but um the conclusion here also is that smart isn't <laughs> right you need something to interpret those results for you that's right and both his product and, and DriveDX, uh, both, uh, from what I see, do a fine job of both explaining what the parameters mean, but also kind of, yeah, because smart is, again, it, it, it's not. Um, right. It's just I, numbers. I've, yeah. I've never had, and actually, you know, the other day I had, so, so there's, you know, another one that I use, which is uh, not as full featured, I would say, but it's called Smart Reporter. And actually what it does is it will also scan for IO errors. And actually the other day I actually had it chatter at me about a drive i had plugged in and it's like yeah i saw some io errors in the kernel log and just thought i'd let you know it's not a smart error but it's 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 not good it's related so, um, yeah exactly yeah 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 huh all right john i want to uh i want to talk about our our first sponsor here and that is eero um we've talked about eero before and i am very very happy to have them as a sponsor because this is the year of the router and here's the thing. If you want enterprise, enterprise-grade Wi-Fi in your home where you can set up a wireless mesh that basically heals itself, figures out what's going on, makes your wireless as efficient as it possibly can be, and even advises you when you can make better changes, uh, you could do that in the past. But you would be spending thousands to do this and you would have to really become a network administrator. It's, it was possible, right? This tech has existed for a long time, but it really was out of reach, uh, both price and generally knowledge-wise of the average consumer. And that's the problem Eero has solved. So you buy an Eero system and you can buy them one-off or you can get um, a three-pack. The three-pack is the way to go because... Here's the cool part. You get three Eero devices and they, you know, they're, they're about the size of an Apple TV, right? I mean, they're, they're white, so they're different than the, the black Apple TV, but, but they're about that size and they have uh, two ethernet ports and, and power and they're smart, right? You plug the first one in and you plug it into your cable modem and it, you know, figures itself out. You configure it with your phone. It's super easy. It actually uses Bluetooth intelligently to find the device. And then of course it does it all with Wi-Fi once, once you get up and running. Uh, but it's a very smooth onboarding process. You set it up and then you plug in the next Eero somewhere else in your house. If you are lucky enough to have ethernet in your walls, you can connect them with ethernet, but most of us are not. So we connect them with Wi-Fi and they just find each other. And when you put the third one in, this is where it gets really cool because the third one talks to both of the other ones. And that's how this wireless mesh is created. It's really, really intelligent. As I said, they have Ethernet ports on them. 
so you can actually bridge to Ethernet. So if you have an Ethernet only device, uh, you know, near your television or something and your um, and your you know, cable modem comes in somewhere else. Well, you can plug in to the Eero and it will use the wireless bridge to give you an Ethernet connection. Uh, and that, that's a really intelligent way to do things. But the thing is, it's all super simple. You just plug these things in, set them up, and they figure it out. They figure out how fast your wireless network it is, uh, or fa how fast your internet connection is, and they manage the traffic so that you're never running into, uh, you know, slowdowns or anything like that. It just works, and it sets up in minutes. It's really, really cool. You got to check this out. Go to eero.com/mgg, and then when you place your order, coupon code MGG gets you free overnight shipping. So you could have this in your house. Well, I don't know what time of day you're listening to this, but you could probably have it tomorrow. Certainly by the next day. Check it out. Eero.com slash MGG. Our thanks to Eero for sponsoring this episode. All right, John, let's get back to some, uh, some tips here. You know, we've been talking about um, OS 10 server and we talked about doing a deep dive on it and we probably still will. Listener Terry uh, however, has found an existing deep dive on YouTube, and we wanted to share that. So we will uh, we will put the the link there for uh, for everyone in the show notes. It's great stuff. Um, it was a a deep dive into OS X Server by Todd Oltoff, broken down into thirty nine parts. So uh, probably really handy to navigate through if you're looking for something specific. Just look for the chapter you want. And, uh, and you're good to go. And that's a good thing. So thank you, Terry, for sharing that. And then Chris has a comment about OS X server that, uh, that is worth repeating. Chris says, Despite the guts of OS X server being included in OS X, when I upgraded to Yosemite, the previous incarnation of OS X server that I had on Mavericks was not compatible, and Apple forced me to repurchase the GUI. So maybe for those looking to buy this, wait for Mac OS Sierra or lobby Apple for this to be a truly free upgrade. So uh, I don't, well, you can lobby Apple, but I, I, I think if you're certainly, if you're going to choose lobbying Apple, you also need to choose uh, whether or not you want to buy twice. Cause I don't think they're going to change it right away. But, uh, but yeah, yeah. If you buy today for Mac OS Sierra, uh, sorry, if you buy today for, um, for El Capitan, you will uh, have to, buy again for Mac OS Sierra when that comes out in the fall. So thanks for the heads up, Chris. Good stuff. Not so bad. Um, I'm actually looking, Dave. So in the bad old days, so OS 10 server has been out as long as OS 10 has been out. Um, That's true. The pricing breakthrough looks to have come after 10.6. So I'm just looking okay. at a history article. 10.6 uh, OS 10 server or Snow Leopard server costs four ninety nine. That's a good chunk of change. Yeah. Then they started making the pricing a lot more reasonable. And then I think the following version, I think, was $50. And then now it's $20, $19.99. So, um, yeah. yeah. Hey, you know, for 20 bucks. Oh, yeah. No, it's it's a good price. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a more than fair price, I think. Yeah, yeah. Or the developer program for $99, though I don't know if you're technically within the proper licensing usage if you do that. Say that again? 
But um, I mean, you, you can get uh, all versions of OS 10 server, uh, as far as I know, if you're part of the developer program. But I, I think you uh, technically should be using it for development purposes. Yeah, I don't think Apple's going to care because you're paying uh, 100 bucks instead of 20 So. Yeah, I mean you're paying a hundred bucks a year, so it's 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 twenty bucks. If if you're only paying for the developer program to get OS ten server, you're overpaying. Uh, just a heads up, in the uh, a lot of developer programs, uh, even though they let you get the products, you know, and the Microsoft does this too. You really shouldn't be using the products for day to day use or business use. You should yeah, be using right. it for development purposes. That's so. right. No, you're you're right. That's that's the point of it. That's right. Yeah. All right. Um, yeah, two tips about, uh, screen sharing here. We'll, we'll take it to Bruce first and, uh, I think we'll take it to Bruce first. How come I can't find Bruce in here? Well, oh, there it is. Never mind. Uh, Bruce said regarding iOS screen sharing and show 611, you guys talked about using QuickTime's player, QuickTime player's new movie recording as a way to show, uh, the remote screen, uh, what's happening on your iDevice. And then make a recording. But if you then connect up using something like Skype, which has built-in screen sharing available, you have a way to view their device remotely in a live form and talk them through whatever they need. I've been using this since El Capitan came out, and it's changed my supporting life. Thank you, Bruce. I, I had meant to circle back to that, actually. There, our conversation kind of got, got lost in the weeds on that one. But, uh, but yeah, thank you for that clarification, because that's absolutely right. Once, once someone has their iOS device up on their screen, or even if they don't, uh, you can, you know, start a, a remote control session or at least a remote viewing session and even walk them through getting it up on the screen and then uh, and then go from there. So thank you for, for clarifying that, Bruce. And then Elliot says uh, related to that. Uh, sharing the iOS device is a really useful thing to do, but what I use instead of using TeamViewer, I use iMessage. iMessage on the Mac allows you to share or ask to share the screen of a contact uh, that also has an Apple ID. To do this on a conversation in messages, click on the details from the top right. Below that, you'll see an icon with two rectangles. Clicking on that allows you to share or ask to share a screen. From there, just displaying the QuickTime window shows a live feed of the iOS screen. So same thing that Bruce was saying, but this is using the built-in uh, iMessage. And you're totally right. You can uh, invite someone to share your screen or ask to share theirs. And it's built right in. It used to be that you had to have an AOL instant messenger account attached to messages in order to do screen sharing, but that has now changed. So you can do it right with, uh, with a, with a normal, uh, normal iMessage account. So. Fun stuff. I like it. Damien will take us to the next one. We've had good stuff uh, so far. Damien says uh, <clears throat> a tip about charging. He says, I may not need to charge in my car. I could certainly plug all my devices in while I'm at home, but to save someone else a little on their electric bill, I've generally used my car to keep my iPhone, my iPad, and my laptop charged. I set up an inverter and plug in devices before I start driving. The problem is that there aren't enough plugs for charging all the devices at once. At home, I have a USB hub that I use for charging my Bluetooth headphones. I normally don't have it plugged into a computer due to the fact that the USB uh, plug doesn't stay plugged into the hub. But since it doesn't need to be plugged into a computer to charge a device, I can plug it into one of the outlets in the inverter. <clears throat> I then have four USB plugs that I can charge from and still plug in my laptop to charge. Although my laptop has two USB plugs, the laptop would have to be turned on and safely sitting in my car to be open, car opened to be charged from. And that's true. 
And uh, he followed up by saying he has noticed no n- noticeable decrease in uh, in, in uh, fuel economy in his car, charging from the car. <laughs> so there you go. You can <laughs> charge from the car. It's true. Our, our, our vehicles generate a ton of electricity that is mostly wasted. Um, but, you know, if you have a hybrid, then, you know, some of that's being captured. But I think even in a hybrid, I mean, I see in our, we've got a Highlander hybrid. And, uh, you know, once it charges up the battery, that's it. The battery's charged. It's not, it's just the same as any other car at that point. It's just kind of throwing away the extra juice. So, yeah. Yeah. I would say, I mean, I kind of chuckled at that line that, you know, you save a little electricity because in theory, you may be using a little bit more gasoline to power the uh, car charger, but I think it's, it's a, yeah, infinitesimal. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. As is what you take for, uh, yeah, I mean, most chargers are. I don't think you're noticing a difference at home either in, in the drop in charging. You might be with your laptop, to be honest, um, depending on how often you, well, you wind it's, up charging uh, it. But, yeah. Well, I mean, an Apple charger for a laptop is what, 85 watts, I That's think? That's right. Or, yeah, uh, Some, uh, up to 85 watts. Yeah. Yeah. So about a traditional incandescent light bulb plus. Right? That's correct. Yeah, I, I give you that. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, but it's not on all the time, but I don't know. Yeah, it's good. And then lastly, uh, in, in our tips, well, maybe not quite lastly in our tip section. Another tip is what I'll say um, is uh, listener Dave wrote in. He said, uh, I found an IEEE article that talks about making a restricted segment of the five gigahertz band available for consumer Wi-Fi. And uh, he says, uh, I did not know there was a restricted segment or that it blocks out a significant chunk of the five gigahertz band. It's restricted because various radar applications use it. And the article talks about a way that a Wi-Fi router can use that region as long as it's willing to get out of the way when it sees radar. And this is totally true. Um, there is a, I think it's DH, oh, what's it called? I think it's a DHS range, but um yeah. Right. There's an acronym for the five gig channels that they, uh, yeah, that are special. Yeah, they're special. But that's the thing is um, it, there's there's a lot of them. So the, the way five gigahertz works, um, 80 megahertz channels are typically what we use for 802.11ac. And so depending on whether you're using the top channel of the range or the bottom channel of the range, uh, I'll go with the bottom channel because that's more common the 80 megahertz channels that exist in the range start at channel 36, 52, 100, 116, 132, and 149. Now, you may be used to seeing them as the, the latter channels in those ranges. So that'd be 48, 64, 112, uh, 128, 144, and 161. And I think Apple's routers actually use the, the upper uh, channels. But... Uh, those are all non-overlapping ranges. So you can have six 802.11ac, 80 megahertz channels running it simultaneously in the same you know, physical vicinity without, uh, without really getting in each other's way. Here's the problem. It's DFS. And it's, um, this is, right. so, but there's two things. There's DFS channels, which are reserved for all sorts of radar. And then there is the weather radar channel, which is really the one that sits um, in the 116 range. And, um, and the problem is a lot of routers have decided to punt and just don't let you tune any of these. And I've seen some newer routers that will only use either channel 36 
or channel 149. So the very low channel at the end of the range and in the, the high one and won't even let you touch the ones in the middle. And that avoids this problem altogether. Uh, that's sort of a pain in the neck. Um, the, the, you know, because maybe you have a, a third radio in your house, right? If, depending on how you configure, if you're using Eero, don't worry about it. That's the beauty of that, right? It figures it out for you. Um, but, uh, but if you've built your own system or you're testing something else, these middle channels can be really, really handy to use. Uh, older routers, I found some of the kind of first to market 802.11 AC routers will support these middle channels, uh, and but they have to get out of the way. I think they have as soon as they see something on that channel, they, they have to constantly be looking for it. And if they see something on one of these DFS channels, they have to get out of the way within I think it's 20 seconds and then stay off that channel for 30 minutes. And then after 30 minutes, they can circle back around. So obviously it takes some additional logic being built into these routers to to get this right. And that's why some manufacturers just say no we'll punt, you know, we're good. Uh, but yeah, it's an interesting thing. So it'll open up more of these. And of course, where this really becomes handy is when we start using 160 megahertz channel width, which really, um, you know, th at that point, there's only two, there's one that starts at 36 and automatically spills into the DFS channel at 52. And then there's one that starts at a hundred and that thing lives entirely within DFS. So it's, uh, it's good. It's good. I, I will. Um, there's a great image that kind of shows all of these channels. And so I'll put that in the uh, I'll put a link to that in the show notes because it's super handy to to see all of that stuff. So, yeah, fun. I don't know. Do, do, what do, do you have? You run an Apple router. Are you able to choose anything other than than the, the lowest one or the highest one? John, no, I haven't run an Apple router for some. Time. Oh, that's right. You're using a. You're using the. Um, the well, I have the an TP Link. Yeah, I have an Express. Um, right, that's different though. But yeah, that's. Yeah. I'm just using that for uh, for uh, AirPlay. Got it. You're right. Right. Yeah. Um, the TP. Uh, I. I just set it up for automatic, and it just kind of picks the channel. What, what channel <laughs> has it picked on the five gigahertz range for you? That's a great question. Let's oh, look at my MacBook Pro and see. Uh, right now, it is on channel 36. Okay, so it's picked the lowest one. Yeah, I don't know if the TP-Links will, will pick the DHS channels or DFS. Sorry, I keep saying DHS, and I'm thinking of Department of Homeland Security, not... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's different. Well, they love you. Different restrictions. Yeah, exactly. And the TSA, they love you, man. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah. All right, good stuff. Good, good. All right. Um, so yeah, check this out on yours. You know, I have, I have had success. Apple devices, client devices will join channels in the DFS range. There's no question about that. I've, I've tested and proven that. And there have been times when I've run things, you know, one of my devices, you know, here's the people always ask me, what router do you use? And, and really the right way to answer the, the, the right question to ask is what router are you testing today? Uh, I test so many things that, uh, there's rarely any consistency in the house other than the name of the Wi-Fi network and the password and the fact that it's working because my family will shoot me otherwise. So I have this, I, I test things like crazy and I have this massive pressure to have a hundred percent uptime. And, and so, you know, this is where I learn uh, trial by fire. Uh, but, uh, but there have been times where I've run, you know, a, a, a router 
at channel 100 for various reasons and it, and all my Apple devices, old and new, happily attached to it. No problem. So it's good stuff. All right, John, uh, John has a question. Not you, John. I mean, listener, John. Oh, I have many questions. We all do. Um, yeah. Uh, and I think this will probably lead into a couple of questions that you have, or actually a slew of questions that you have. So, uh, John writes, while on vacation on Germany, <clears throat> let me say that a better way. <clears throat> Man, I got like the frog in my throat today. While on vacation in Germany, I tried a couple searches on my MacBook Pro with Safari. It searched with Yahoo. I went to preferences and set it to Google, and it searched with Yahoo. I shut down, and when I opened, I set it to Google, and it only searched in Yahoo. Now my homepage is stuck to Yahoo. How do I change it? Why is it only Yahoo? I tried the other options of Bing and DuckDuckGo, and guess what? Always Yahoo. Um, my feeling, and this is a very, very, very strong feeling, is that you have a piece of malware on your Mac that has hijacked your Safari searches and homepage to Yahoo. And I believe it's got some affiliate, you know, thing attached to it. So somebody's, somebody's trying to make money off of you clicking through and, and doing all of this. So there are, um, th actually there's an article on Apple's website about, uh, removing it's probably the Genio or install Mac, um, ad injection malware is what this likely is. And very, very frequent uh, poster on the Apple discussion forums, Link Davis has some great instructions about uh, how to get rid of this specifically. But, um, but I think we're going we're gonna to lead into some of that, John, in terms of detection and removal as well. So there you go. The, the one thing that may be happening, Dave, yeah. Um, Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm with you, uh, and I'll read the question in a moment here. But I do sure. remember someone, I do remember having a similar issue with settings not sticking in mail. Um, mm. We had someone that had a problem with this. As it turns out, it seemed to be an issue with iCloud. Now, I remember this, is, is you, you could try to set your preferred mail client, uh, and you can set it within mail, saying it's, it's one other than mail app. And you leave mail and you come back and it's set back to mail. And it's like, huh? Yeah, I, I actually verified this. Uh, I had to log out of iCloud. Then I could make the change and then log back into iCloud and then everything was fine. So I'm just mentioning that, that it may be that. But yeah, I'm with you, I think. Uh, and, and Joe will kind of lead us into this. Um, so Joe says, hi, my Safari has been hijacked. By a site named ssapplicd.com. Yeah. It keeps requiring me to download a version of Flash. I know this is one of those spam sites and, I, and it could take over my whole computer. I look for any files around that time with Safari in them and only found a plist file. I deleted that and emptied the trash. Okay, well, it's a good try. But um, sure. there's a lot of files uh, that, that uh, Safari loads and some of them are HTML templates and, and stuff like this that a lot of this... Uh, nasty stuff uh, will change uh, using, I guess, JavaScript or who, who knows. Um, but he said, when he restarted Safari, the site came up again. What would you suggest? And here's what I'm going to suggest, Dave. Um, first off, don't feel so bad because I think I, I had this happen. Uh, I was looking for some sort of media converter that was recommended in an article that I read and uh, I downloaded it, installed it, and all of a sudden it took over my browser with, you know, adware. 
like, oh man, you know. Yeah, that's you, the right that's the right term for this is is adware. It it's malware is is I, I don't I guess it's not incorrect. Adware is just a a a better more descriptive term. Yeah, for this. Yeah, and I think stuff. what it does is it basically rewrites some key Safari files that normally lead you one place, but it leads you to another. Yep. Uh, and like you said, it you know generates ad revenue for somebody yeah. and that's just not, not you that's just that's right. dishonest right so um the best program to do this and i've actually used this uh, uh on my parents machine as well because they got tricked uh installing some things too uh malware bytes uh makes a fine free package to uh scan your system uh and i think you can throw them some money if you want and they also make enterprise uh Enterprise level malware detection as well, but malwarebytes.com. Uh, check them out and you can uh, get their scanning software. I run it on occasion just when my browser is doing weird things to make sure that it has not been infected or taken over. And uh, Joe actually, uh, he, he got back to us and said, um, yeah, you know, it wasn't that. So I, I think what it was, it was just something that may have just rewritten his uh, search it didn't find anything. If it didn't find anything, then, then I don't think he was infected. But some sites may rewrite, you know, your preferred homepage or search page. Yeah. You know, without your express permission, which is also, guys, come on, stop it. <laughs> so that's Joe. Um, moving on to Phil. This is an interesting one, Dave. Or at least okay. I think it is. Uh, where are you, Phil? I don't see Phil. Did we miss? Did I not copy Phil into our? Uh... You may not have because it was in the last. Uh, hold on. Oh yeah, I assumed I did, but uh, I bet we can find him because we have search capabilities here. You know, <clears throat> I'm going to move it into the uh, current show thing. But you know, I, could, I if you want, I'll read Phil's question. And well, then... no, I got it. I got, got it right here. Okay. Okay. So Phil has a question. So Phil says, "I live on Cape Cod. Oh, that's nice." Um, where we have Comcast and multiple Xfinity hotspots, which are good and bad. The good being being able to connect to them sometimes when you need to. The bad is that for some reason, those hotspots take priority over my home Wi-Fi and Wi-Fi at the office. I know on a Mac that you can set a preference order to connect, but I can't seem to find it anywhere on iOS. Any thoughts? Yes. Yes. Oh, good. I was waiting. I was <laughs> well, waiting with, with bated breath. Okay. And it's not, swig, not because I was... a swig of water. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Um, you know, I've run into that as well. Now, the bad news did. Uh, so I have... Uh, so in my hood, I got optimum Wi-Fi. And I've noticed this as well until I change some things. The bad news, Dave, is that I don't think there's a way to do it on iOS. Um, Apple does have a dandy little article on iOS de- how iOS decides, and you just move the file that I was looking at into uh-huh. a different notebook. And I it told just, you I did. <laughs> yeah, and it, it just does. happened. So uh, Go to the current show notebook, and it's, you'll see it in yeah. there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. But um, okay. okay, so the thing is, Apple does have an article, how iOS <laughs> decides which wireless network to auto-join. Handing John the reins and then in real time uh, subverting all of his me. efforts. That's right. Yes, that's right. It's like, ha, huh. All right. So Apple has an article, how iOS decides which wireless network to auto-join. 
Uh, and they talk about various uh, criteria that they use as far as security and signal strength and blah, blah, blah. blah. But I think the key is that they do have a line here, which I, I don't think they entirely explain what they're doing here, Dave, or at least this is my read. And they say, when iOS evaluates SSISDs to auto-join, it prefers known networks, higher levels of security, and stronger relative signal strength. What I think they're kind of glossing over is per, per known networks, preferred known networks. Well, what, what exactly does that mean? And at least the, in, in the case if you're... Uh, well, networks that you've joined before is what known networks means. Right. Yeah. The thing is, is that iOS, last I checked, doesn't give you a way to see these. So he is correct in that case. Well, so. it, it does when you are connected or when you when they are visible, right? So if you go into settings and Wi-Fi uh, and, and you look at all of the networks that are available for you to join, from there, you can click on the little I for info, presumably, for each of those networks and turn on or off auto join. And then of course, if the network requires it, you can turn on or off auto login. So you can manage this from iOS, but only when you can see the, the, the networks, you can't like sit at home and manage things that you can't see if that makes sense. Right. But so I think that, but the way to see the entire list and this, uh, assuming that you're you're logged into iCloud, or when we yeah. So if, yeah, if no, you are right. part of iCloud, which um, you know iCloud kind of communicates this uh, among devices, um, now you have to be on an OS 10 machine to to really get the big picture here. But if you go to System Preferences, Network, then your Wi-Fi, and then click on Advanced, you're going to see a list of preferred networks. The thing is, you can change the ordering. And I'll say I ran into this before and that the ordering was not what I had expected and that I think at one point it actually had Optimum ahead of my home one. And I'm like, well, no, I don't want that. I want yeah. my home network to be at the tippy top of the list there. So when I'm home, now, I mean, this the is, way this they is evaluating just back to our, our Logan Wi-Fi issue, right? I mean, it's the same problem that we keep talking about over and over again. So that's, you know. Right. Yeah. So that's really where you're going to have to go, I think, to, uh, yeah. to make sure that this doesn't happen. The, the thing is, it should, I mean, based on signal strength, you know, I mean, it, it says iOS looks at signal strength. And one would assume that your home network is stronger than. <laughs> well, no, your home network would be exactly the same strength as your Xfinity network because they're right. both coming from the same device. <clears throat> um, so here's something interesting, though. With, Ooh, right? Especially if you have one of their. Yeah, if you're and using it's set up as as uh, and it's set up in your home, I get that's it. That's what I'm saying. Okay. Yeah, and if so, if Xfinity Wi-Fi is above your home Wi-Fi and they're both the same strength, then it's going to join. But here's some something interesting. Um, I've been running iOS 10, the beta on my phone, which has actually been stellar. I have had very very few bugs. I had one issue with the Apple Watch, um, and it was weird. I installed the, you know, the beta three, whatever it was at the time on the, uh, on my Apple watch and battery life just totally took a nosedive. I'm like, Oh crap. So I started down this process of, you know, disabling apps, trying to figure out which app was using more battery. And I couldn't, I couldn't narrow it down. And then one day I got a text message from you and it said, I had, um, a message on my watch. It didn't show me your name. It showed me your phone number. It's like, oh, this is weird. So I looked and sure enough, it, it, I think I mentioned this in the last show, it didn't have uh, all of my contacts in there. So once it loaded all my contacts, the watch and, and the phone actually had both been great on iOS 10. 
But there is something interesting in iOS 10 um, in the, if you go into settings and Wi-Fi, and that is that it will tell you if you're joined to an insecure network, like a network that doesn't have security on it, it actually gives you a little note in the Wi-Fi settings that says you should add encryption to your network. What's interesting is it doesn't say this if I'm connected to a Wi-Fi network named Xfinity Wi-Fi. Like it, they, they must have a whitelist in there of things that they know aren't home networks. And they don't bother to pester you about those because they know they're not under your control. But I was at a restaurant the other day that I joined and there, you know, the, the name of the network was like the name of the restaurant. So it was something custom. And I got the little message that was like, you should add encryption to your, to your home network. And I was like, yeah, but I'm not at home. Uh, that's cool. But, uh, but yeah, they're being a little more intelligent about that uh, in iOS 10 in a good way. And, and warning you if you're running, you know, what they think a home network is without encryption or, or pro it'll probably warn you if you're running WEP too, I would guess, which is good. So I like it. Uh, you know, sometimes, <clears throat> pardon me, sometimes it's a little frustrating, but whatever. Life's frustrating. Yeah. It can be. It can be. Yeah. Yeah. All right, John, where are we going next? One of my machines is frustrating me. I'll talk about that later. But um, first, there's something that isn't frustrating, Peter, but, but Peter's concerned. And if Peter's concerned, I'm concerned. And you're concerned. And we're all concerned. So he wonders if he's having an overheating problem. Uh, so he has a MacBook Pro 15-inch mid-2014, and he thinks there's a problem with heat. Uh, so the computer has a quad 2.5 gigahertz CPU with hyper-threading. It presents eight cores to the CPU. Um, and to kind of gloss over the sum of this stuff here is that he will notice, so I guess he's using something like iStat menus, um, he will notice that at times uh, the temperature of the CPU uh, is hovering around 80 degrees C. What is this? C? Oh, that's what the rest of the world uses. <laughs> For those that don't know, C, 0C is freezing, 100C is boiling, right? I'm pretty sure. Where water freezes and water boils. That's so correct. That's the range there. Yeah. Um, but he will notice that sometimes when he's uh, running processor-intensive jobs that his processor will reach 100 degrees C. That's 212F. Does he think, do, we, uh, do I think, or do we all think that there's a problem? Well, how, how do you know what the proper temperature, the maximum temperature is that your processor could be running at, Dave? Well, one, I, I wouldn't recommend this, but I thought I'd mention it because I'm like, you know, I wonder if there's any site out there that has a list of uh, processor temperatures that people have measured to see if we're in the ballpark here. And I did find a site, intelmactemp.com slash list, and it had a list of uh, what people reported. They'll take it with a grain of salt because I saw one value there that didn't make sense to me. Um, okay. But most of them were below 100C. I'm like, okay, that's a... Sure. But then I'm like, you know what? Let me get the info from the source. So who's the source? Well, one source is I wanted to use MacTracker and take this model of a machine and see what processor it has. And it has an Intel Core i7 uh, Haswell processor. Okay. All right. Well, you know, then let's go to Intel. And if you go to Intel, you can get um, a list of all their processors. Um, so I found the data sheet for this processor. Um, though it probably answered the one question here um, is that they do say in the summary for this processor 
they'll say that the maximum temperature that you can expect at T junction, which is the temperature of the processor, is 100 degrees C. All right. And if he's seeing 100 degrees C, I would say there's not a problem. It is, it is operating within spec. Within spec at, at the top end, but it, it is operating with, within spec. Now, you could, if you're not comfortable with it running at that temperature. Um, so the thing is, as, as the power, and then they show these nice graphs in the data sheet, it says the power to the processor increases, the temperature increases. That's just how yeah, that's electronics how, work. That's how, right. Yeah, it, it, physics still proves true. Yep. Yeah, so yeah. if you're maxing out the processor and consuming all resources, 100C is not unreasonable. You're, you're going to see yeah. that. And the thing is, the, the computer, though, then, the computer maker has to manage that. And the way they manage that is that they will have fans that go over heat sinks that are connected to the processor. And as the temperature increases, the fans will spin faster to lower the temperature. Because if the fans sure. are going faster, they dissipate the heat quicker from the, the heat sinks, sure. the, the little fins. Um. There's another piece of data, though, that I looked, uh, and, and this uh, interested me. We've talked about this, but I, I wanted to get the facts here. So Intel processors, at least this specific model, also has um, a pin called ThermTrip. Hmm, that probably stands for Thermal Trip. And basically what that is, is that is a circuit. And if this circuit reaches a certain temperature, it's going to shut down the processor so it doesn't damage itself. And that is activated if you reach 130C. The thing is, it is possible. So if you have like dust or, or, or your fans are malfunctioning, it is possible for the processor to get above 100C. Sure. Um, and your utility that you're using to report the temperature will uh, sh may indicate that it's over temperature or you'll just see it. Uh, but if the processor is doing its job, then it should shut the system down if it reaches 130C. So Okay. It can run that fast, but once it gets that hot, then it's like, nope, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna hurt myself if I, if I keep doing this for sure. the time. Well, and you can, if you, if you don't want to be running that hot, you could tell your fans to, to be running faster, right? You can, you can manually control that with. Well, I mean, I'm sure there's ways you could do it from the terminal, but uh, utilities like iStat menus and there's many others will let you manage the fans and, and run them faster to keep your CPU temp down. Perhaps. Absolutely. Yeah. So, but that was a fun exercise. That's cool. Uh, so, Hey, if you get, if you got some time and you want to learn every little nook and cranny of your Intel processor, they got it. That's pretty cool, man. I like that. That's good. It is. All right. Um, it, because it, yeah, you know, it's nice to have a, um, it, nice to have a a, a a benchmark to compare against because otherwise you're just like, well, I hope it's okay. Yeah, good stuff, man. Yeah, right. and and you know when you look at iStat menus, oh my gosh, it, it, there are so many temperature sensors all throughout the computer because yeah, heat heat kills. Yeah, <laughs> not just not just you know things stuck in cars, but um, uh, your computer as well. Yeah. And then David has a good one here. I did a little research here. So David says, I currently use a control panel called Cuckoo <laughs> to make my clock chime on the quarter hour. Does the he mean a system is, preference pane called Cuckoo? Um, yeah, because we don't have control panels anymore. So maybe no. it's a pref pane. I'm not sure. Or maybe it's an app. Sure. 
I found references to it. Okay. I, I, I didn't install it. Cool. Um, but he says the problem is that it hasn't been updated since at least Snow Leopard, and it's still 32-bit. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. There's still, that's not necessarily a bad thing, right? So if, you, if you can run a 64-bit version. Yeah, does, um, it, does having that running, is it one of those things that, that forces other things to run 32-bit? I don't know. I, I'm, I'm, I'm asking this. Like, like, does it cripple your system in any way other than just that program? Because, you know, for that, it probably doesn't matter. But I don't know. I don't know what are we talking about here. 32-bit is old technology. 32-bit is the, the size of the information that the computer deals with, and older processors dealt with information in 32-bit chunks, and the latest processors, uh, 64 bits. Sure. All in all, 64 bits is better. You, you know, it'll run faster and more accurately. You can address more memory, all that great stuff. Uh, right. Apple explains this. Um, do I know of a more modern utility? So I, I went on a... a Learning journey, Dave. Sweet. Now, one here's one option, Dave. Um, did you know that OS 10 can do this for you? Yeah, I hear it you when I'm on, did. on on conference calls with people that have it do it. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, system preferences, date and time, clock, and you're going to see a checkbox announce the time, and there's a on the quarter hour choice. So if that's your goal, the only thing is that the it can only announce it. You can't play a sound, which it sounds like cuckoo does that. So it makes a clock chime. So if you don't, so if you don't mind it being a voice actually announcing the time, uh, the good news is that you can choose from a whole bunch of voices and you can actually custom. So, so any voice available and they have high quality voices and, you know, synthesized voices, uh, you can choose from any of them. So if you're cool with that, uh, why not use what's built into OS 10? Uh, but if you'd like to, uh, customize and, and play your own sound, uh, Probably the best option I found, Dave, though it's 32-bit because I did download it, um, but it's something called Timer for Mac. I just came across this. Uh, looks to be overkill. It does way more than just allow you to play a periodic chime, but it says it's El Capitan ready, but it's 32-bit. But it's it's uh, fairly recent. Okay. So, um, you know, I looked at it, and it, it would seem to do more than you want. <laughs> I don't, I, don't know know. Why it's, I don't know why it's 32-bit. Maybe it's just a, it, it's difficult to, who knows? Yeah. So there you go, David. Um, two options for you. Yeah. Interesting. I don't know. I, w- I was actually looking, at, so now I'm going to John F. Braun you. Um, I was digging into <laughs> to this. And no, and looking at the the choices for voice, right? And there's, I'm in the U.S., right? So I have a ton of choices for U.S. English female and then uh, almost as many for U.S. English male. And then I have U.S. English novelty choices and things like Deranged and, you know, Zarbox and Whisper. <laughs> yeah. Right. And then, and then starts all the other languages in alphabetical order, starting with Arabic and then Chinese. And if I go down to English again, I have two versions of Australian English and Indian English. Ireland, Irish, Ireland, English, uh, Scottish standard English, South African English, UK English. So you could pick and you can pick a custom voice. You don't have to go with the system voice for your, your, uh, your chime. You can pick a custom voice that is only your chime and you can actually pick a custom rate. So there might be some fun you could have with this here. So, 
Yeah, I just wish there was an option to play a system sound. I don't know why. And maybe there's a secret hand wave you can do to make that happen. It, it just would be something I expect would be yeah. there yeah. And, and trivial to accomplish. But uh, it seems they only want to announce it using a voice. Right, right, hmm. right. Yeah. Oh, well. All right. We've got, um, we've got time for... For I think well certainly one more and and maybe two more we'll see how quickly we can get through uh, listener John's question here I think I can find it did I skip this one too maybe I didn't put this in our uh, uh, our uh, our thing I don't see it in our our room so I I did it to myself too um, listener John asked he said I recently changed my uh, sister's email address. And it's correct in contacts, but anytime I go type her name in mail, it starts filling in the wrong thing, her old one. How do I change this in mail? And it's actually quite simple. Um, in mail, what you do is go to um, the window menu and go to previous recipients and remove it from there. So mail will remember all of your previous recipients, whether or not you've added them to contacts. And this can be handy because, you know, you wind up emailing the same person. You might not put them in your contacts. It's just doing this to be, to be helpful for you. But there are times when you need to do a little bit of house cleaning there. And, uh, and that's how you do it. Window previous recipients, you can select multiples. You could select all if you wanted and, and really blow it away. But, uh, but this is where you would, you would take care of that, John. So it's good stuff. And then Dan, I'm assuming you don't have anything to add to that, John, right? Are we, uh, we good on that one? Nope. It's, uh, it's nice when it remembers, but not when it remembers wrong. But when it remembers the one you didn't want it to. Yeah. Remember, you know, computers do uh, what we tell them, not what we expect them to do. And that can be frustrating at times. Just what I asked for, not what I want. That, that's it. <laughs> uh, Dan writes, he says, I have a MacBook Air I travel with and I love. I've got all the bells and whistles. I just built a Hackintosh. And I'm happy with it. In my ideal world, it shouldn't matter to me if I am on my laptop or my desktop. I want everything in sync. But I don't want to put everything on the cloud, partially because of money, but also partially just security concerns. I don't want to use a NAS solution because what about when I'm flying an all too often occurrence? When I'm at 30,000 feet, I just want it to be there, whatever it is. He says, I guess my preferred solution would be that with no intervention on my part, within an hour of returning home, my desktop would have all my stuff that the laptop does. I'm willing to live without a few apps, mostly concerned about photos, documents, settings, iTunes. Have any recommendations? I guess I could lug around a Drobo or something like that, but that sounds like a thief magnet. It also sounds heavy, uh, so I wouldn't recommend it. Honestly, um, the concept of private cloud is what you're describing. Uh, and it's implemented in a lot of different ways and you have a lot of different choices about how you go about doing this. But, uh, but private cloud is what you want. BitTorrent sync is going to get you really, really close. And here's the cool part about BitTorrent sync. Uh, it does not require a server. It doesn't require you to set up a server. Uh, it will, uh, it, it's all just peer to peer. Now you could, I use BitTorrent sync here and a, uh, Effectively, I have a server in that my NAS is a, a participant on my personal BitTorrent sync cloud, and it's always on. But really, it's just a participant 
and is equal to all of my computers. So as long as, uh, as long, and I, you know, I just heard it tell me it's 12 o'clock in my ears because I turned on the stupid chime we were talking about before, John. <laughs> I heard it too. Did you hear it? Oh, cause you turned it on on your end. Oh yeah. Like, that couldn't have made it to the Oops. show. Yep. Um, but, uh, but BitTorrent Sync, every client is just equal. So as long as one of them can see at least one other, the sync will happen. And it will happen either on your local network, if you're both on your local network, or it will happen across the internet. Uh, and it works great. Where it get, And so I highly recommend it. And it's free for, you know, certainly, I, I don't, I, well, there's a limit to how free it is, but it's really not limited. You can do quite a bit with the free version of, of BitTorrent Sync. And I think that's at GetSync.com. So I highly recommend that. Uh, where it might get weird is Photos. Because as we previously discussed, you know, the photo syncing your photos library is a difficult thing because photos is not meant to be accessed by multiple computers simultaneously. So as long as you are uber diligent about never launching photos on both computers simultaneously, you'll probably be okay syncing your photos library, but you got to make sure the sync has finished once you've quit photos on one before you launch it on the other. So if, as long as you can manage that on your own, then my guess is BitTorrent sync would, would sync your photos just fine as well. Uh, but you know, there's a huge amount of caution in that, but in terms of your documents and all of that, I think BitTorrent sync, what you want, BitTorrent sync is what you want. There are, but there are other solutions, right? Like uh, Synology on their NAS devices has a uh, cloud station, right? And, that works the same way. Uh, it does use a NAS, but it's not, you don't connect to the NAS to read your files. It's kind of like personal Dropbox, which is similar to what BitTorrent sync is, right? It's syncing the content using the NAS as the server. But when you're on an airplane, you still have all the content that's been synced locally. Once you make changes to it, once you connect uh, online next time, it goes and syncs up with, with your Synology and then off it goes. So there's lots of solutions here. And, and, you know, private cloud is, is what we're talking about. That's what we call it. Uh, I think, I think you can, I think you can find that. And then uh, we'll run for fun in the, in the chat room. Uh, also mentions own cloud, OWN cloud, which I, th there was some weirdness about setting that up on the Mac for a while that I think they've dealt with, but it's an open source personal cloud. And again, it, that's not just, not just for syncing files. That's got a mail server and a calendar server and contact server and like everything in it. So it's cool. There's, you know, there's all kinds of cool stuff. So that's what, uh, that's what I have on that one. I don't know, John, what, uh, what you have. Um, I mean, I got a few things, but none of them are private cloud. So I'm not going to mention iCloud drive or Dropbox or Google drive right. or, OneDrive, <laughs> which are the four <laughs> that I use right now. Sure, um, yeah, but those right, have, those are all public cloud, if you will. Uh, you know, yeah. right? But they all. Uh, but you know, one, one criteria I think is, uh, you know, the criteria is I don't want to lay down any coin, and and uh, all of those. Uh, I, I have their uh, you know thrifty plan, which is I sure. don't give any of them except iCloud. I finally, you know, decided to lay down the ninety nine cents a month to get the fifty. Sure. 
50 gigs of storage. How, how, I, I'm curious, John, I'm going to take us on a tangent because I've been thinking about this lately, especially <laughs> as we've been, as we've been talking about all kinds of different photo syncing, how close are you to just spending the money to make sure you have enough iCloud storage for your photo library and using iCloud photo library and, and, and just letting it happen and, and joining the, uh, you know, the Apple framework. You've thought about it. <sighs> the thing is, I got a lot of photos, man. Same. I have to buy more. The, the oh, thing I is, know. My, my, my photos library. So what I'd have to do, Dave, so my photos library, uh, I think it's over 100 gigs. So I'd have to get a larger plan. That, no, I know. That's what, that's my, <laughs> I know that. And my question wasn't, would you squeeze it into what you have is, would you buy, how close are you to buying the larger plan and just letting your stuff, you know, just going the Apple route? Because it's not uh, that much more money, right? You know. Well, the thing is, let me look here. So let me see. So I click on manage, uh, buy more storage. Let's see what they. Uh, well, you you for you you could pay two ninety nine a month in the U S. to get two hundred gigs. So you pay ninety nine cents now and you get fifty. For two ninety nine, it's two hundred, and for nine ninety nine, it's a terabyte. So you know you're you're at max talking about a uh, hundred and twenty bucks a year. Not not insignificant, but also not going to crush you you know that's that's your well, here, well no they, well 200 gigs is three bucks a month so yeah so right 36 uh that's 36 dollars a year yeah yeah you see um, yeah you're looking at somewhere between 36 and 120 um not that close okay i'm i'm happy with uh the way i have things set up is that i you know have oh, my yeah, yeah yeah i know my yeah. huge photo library on my computer and then uh I, you know, the, uh, uh, photo stream, uh, is what I like on, on, you know, my iOS devices. Sure. And, uh, well, you know what, I'm going to, I'm I'm going to stop you because a, it, we're at the end of the show and B, I think our sinking life is a great deep dive episode to do. So I'm going to put that on the list. I don't know if that's going to be in the same deep dive episode as, uh, as backup, but I feel, you know, they're related. I don't know that we could squeeze both of them in, but I feel like uh, that is, they are both good deep dive well, episodes. Yeah. So. No, you, you, you make a good point because, um, like, for example, I use Dropbox's, uh, you know, to yeah, sync we're my camera talk about this in addition to some other things. And we're going to talk about later. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, yeah. I agree. And I also have some uh, pieces of hardware that deal right. with my photos as well and sync my I photos. Know. So yeah. it's, it, uh, yeah, talking about our syncing world. Yeah. Whether yeah, it's in yeah. the cloud or somewhere else. And, and speaking of the cloud, if you'd like to send something into the cloud, like an email to ask us a question or give us a tip or uh, just say hello, you could send it, Dave, to feedback at MacGeekGab.com. I think you said feedback at MacGeekGab.com. I most certainly did say feedback at MacGeekGab.com. Yeah. That's right. Unless you're a premium listener, which in which case uh, you get to email us at premium at macgeekgab.com. And we're Adam and I have uh, we're both back from our travels. Obviously, I've, obviously I'm back, and and if you follow Adam Christensen at MacCast, he's back. Adam does uh, all, all of our backend programming. It, anything I don't do, and I do about one percent. So it's all Adam these days. But uh, but we've been working together now that we're both back from our July travels in in getting the uh, premium system migrated over to WordPress because that was a that was one thing we did not do in the migration as we mentioned. So 
Uh, but you can still learn about premium at MacGeekOut.com. And, uh, and you can sign up there. It's just a little wonky managing your accounts, but everything is, trust me, everything is fine. It just, uh, the user interface is a little wonky. And that's actually part of the reason we wanted to migrate because it was, it was wonky before. It has nothing to do with our migration. But, uh, so, premium, MacGeekOut.com. We'd love your support. Our premium listeners in this episode uh, were David, uh, asking about the chimes, Joe with the malware, Dave, who brought up the discussion about the uh, the DFS channels. I think we've got that right, right? It's, um, you know, I don't know. Is it DHS, DHL, DFS? It's all the same. Uh, Mark, premium listener Mark, talked about trim with us. And then Robin with the killer Touch ID tips earlier in the show. So thank you to all of you who are premium listeners. Uh, you really do help us keep the lights on and... Uh, Help us do the cool things that we get to do in order to prep for this show for you. So thank you uh, very much. 224-888-GEEK is the phone number anyone can call. And John, GEEK is? 4335? Yeah, and you can't just call it, or you can call it. In addition to calling it, you can text us at that number as well. You can find us on Facebook at uh, mattgeekhub.com slash Facebook. And uh, that'll bring you to the great Facebook group. I believe we just tipped over the 1,100 uh, member uh, number, which means we're looking now we're looking for 12, and we keep growing. Uh, it, it could happen within the next week or two, I think. It just keeps growing and growing faster and faster. So things are doing really well for uh, for all of us over there. It's a great, great community because we can all participate, and everybody is equal there, and I like that. So it's good. Cashfly, I want to thank. C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com for uh, providing all the bandwidth to get the show from us to you. And of course, all our sponsors in the podcast marketplace, Eero at E-E-R-O.com slash M-G-G, where coupon code M-G-G saves you uh, all the money on free overnight shipping. Gazelle at gazelle.com, smile at smilesoftware.com, Otherworld Computing at MaxSales.com, Barebones Software at Barebones.com, and Casper at Casper.com slash MGG, where coupon code MGG saves you 50 bucks all through the Backbeat Media Podcast Network. John, I started this show. You finish it with your favorite advice. I'm going to finish it. And this is advice we should all take and that you don't want to get caught. Made up.